Welcome to SGTM Talks. We hope you find this encouraging and inspiring. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. In 1973, two psychology researchers called Darley and Batson conducted an experiment on trainee priests at Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey, which has become known as the Good Samaritan Experiment. Darley and Batson were interested in what makes people do good, unselfish things. But they knew that none of the psychology research so far had found what personality traits seemed to predict who would do the right thing, especially in a crisis. Were some kinds of people motivated to help because they had the right kind of personality? Or did our helping motivations come more from the urgency of the situation itself, they wondered? How could psychology make people more likely to help? One idea that Darley and Batson wanted to test was whether thinking more good, unselfish thoughts would make you more likely to help in a crisis. Another idea they had was that maybe it was the motivations of people's religious faith. Was it the people who believed in God because they felt that gave them real meaning in life who would be more likely to help? Or was it the people who believed in God because they were wanted to go to heaven? So they devised an experiment with the trainee priests who did not know what was going on. 
First of all, everybody had to complete a personality questionnaire about their faith to give the researchers a baseline um, about uh, whether they believed in God for internal reasons, because it gave them meaning, or external reasons, because they wanted to go to heaven. Then, the ordinands were sent to another building to prepare a task. Half of them were told they had to prepare a talk on a neutral subject. I think it was travel, um, somewhere they'd been. The other half were told that they needed to prepare a sermon on the story of the Good Samaritan. An hour and a half later, each um, uh, person was called over and told when their speaking slot would be. One third were told that they would be giving the talk in the building next door and they had plenty of time. The talk would be in an hour's time, so they, had, they, they could wander over. The middle third were told that they were just on time, that their talk would begin in 20 minutes and plead could they go over now so that they wouldn't be late. The final third were told that due to a mix-up in the schedule, um, the timetable had been changed and they needed to get to the other building quickly because they were on in 10 minutes. What the priests didn't know was that in an alleyway between the two buildings, Darley and Batson had placed another student who was lying on the floor and groaning. To get to the building where they had to give their talk, the student priests would have to step over the sick man. On average, more than half of them did step over him, right over him, and carried on their way. Half were on their way to deliver a sermon about the Good Samaritan, and they would not stop for someone lying sick on their own path. But Dali and Batson were not out to prove that Christians were hypocrites. In fact, they noticed that when the students rushed into the talk room, many were flustered and distressed. They had been torn between helping the person and letting their audience down or looking foolish. What the psychologist wanted to know was what made the difference. It turned out that thinking about religion and about good thoughts had no effect the same number of people stopped whether they were been preparing a talk about somewhere they'd traveled to or about the Good Samaritan. It also didn't make any difference why people believed in God, whether they believed because it gave them purpose and meaning or whether they believed because they wanted to go to heaven. The thing that made the difference was hurry. 65% of the people who were in plenty of time stopped. 43% of the people who were on just on time stopped. 10% of the people who were late and stressed stopped. It is not cruelty that makes people ignore someone in pain. It is pressure of time. Now, Jesus' parable is not expressly about hurry. It's about who really fulfills God's commandments and who lives the life of the righteous. And it's about the way that second order considerations, like purity in worship, get in the way of primary order considerations, loving your neighbor and loving God. Okay, maybe the priest and the Levite were busy. Maybe they feared that they would be ritually contaminated on their way to work 
from a dead body and would be unable to do the cleansing ceremonies in time so that they could take their place on the temple rota. Maybe also they knew that this was going to be expensive, that they were going to have to pay this guy's hospital bills if he was still alive, and so they used that as an excuse. But the point is that it is time pressure and performance stress which makes us behave like them. Surprisingly, experiments on the New York subway show that when it comes to helping a sick stranger, ethnic background, race, doesn't make a huge amount of difference. People will help somebody from a different background from themselves. But in the modern world, what makes us create the effects of religious exclusivity, willful blindness, and second-order priorities dominating first-order is time. It is pressure of time which stops us loving God, stops us loving ourselves, and stops us loving our neighbour. During Lent, we're thinking about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Halfway into his mission, he sets his face towards the place which is most dangerous to him, and his encounters, as Jamie said last week, start to speak of the difficulty of staying true to God, and not only the joy. They are conflicts with power, the power of family, the power of authority, the power of the group. Lent is the time to reflect on the powers that bind us, the habits, the entitlements, the fears, which consciously or unconsciously are powers and which are controlling us. I would hazard a guess that for modern people, it is less likely to be chocolate and more likely to be pressure of time, which is the powerful controlling factor. It is not a sin to be busy. Jesus is sometimes so busy he cannot eat. Sometimes Jesus sleeps during the day because he is so tired. But pressure of time really matters because it sets our whole agenda. It's a second order thing which takes the priorities of the first order thing. Pressure of time causes constant anxiety and self-blame. It sorts the world into two piles. Helps me get it done, doesn't help me get it done. And if things in, or people are in the second pile, doesn't help me get it done, then they stop counting. You don't have time to smell the blossom. You don't have time to chat. You don't have time to stop for the man selling the big issue. In fact, the man selling the big issue is the thing that gets in the way of you getting to your next appointment. The goal becomes ticking off the to-do list more than the value of the things on the list. I once went on a coach tour when I was on holiday in France. I didn't have a car, um, so the only way I could get around was to go on a coach tour. And we drove. We drove for two hours to a historic hilltop village in, in Provence. And then we got out, and the man said, right, you've got 20 minutes, and then we need to get back on again. You know what I mean. But I do want to say 
that if you are a busy person, it's not your fault, probably. Pressure of time is baked into modern life. Since the 1800s, our society has been based on competition and what the sociologists call acceleration. To make money, to generate wages, companies have to do more in the same time than the competition. When one company innovates, everyone else has to change to catch up. People change jobs or retrain to work faster. The acceleration continues. Sometimes you can accelerate because you've got new technology, brilliant. Sometimes you can accelerate because you've got new processes and new ideas, brilliant. But often you accelerate because you're doing more work in the same time. People change jobs and retrain and the acceleration continues and in modern cities, it's the way of life. People move jobs as companies go up and down and moving is stressful. You need to prove yourself, take an evening class, widen your social network, squeeze in another job on the side. And that's time you're not spending with your neighbors or volunteering to help the kids with football. Powerful companies run zero hours contracts which allow you to pull workers in at a moment's notice rather than have them off and rebuilding relationships at the weekend. Research in America shows this is a major driver of poor diets and neglected families because you just don't know when there will be time to cook. In this destabilized, long hours environment, love relationships become more unstable and more competitive. After a breakup, you have to increase your market share of attractiveness again and run to the gym and shop for nicer clothes and worry about how you look and leisure, beauty and retail companies are very keen that you sense the pressure of competition because their share of the market depends on that too. Expensive housing in London especially means complicated supply chains for life. Job changes, you have to move. The grandparents are further away. You, the kids' schools are in an, another borough. You find you need a childminder. You need a second job for the childminder. And there you are at 5 a.m. catching the tube. My point is that there are no breaks on this process. The fear of falling behind other countries, of becoming uncompetitive, losing jobs and losing, losing status, is the deepest driver of policy for Labour and the Lib Dems and the Conservatives. Success depends on growth, more tax take, climbing the international league tables. And so there is constant pressure on both private sector and public sector to do more stuff in less time. Sociologist Hartmut Rosa says modern life is like being on the down escalator. If you want to rise, or even to stay still, you've got to keep pushing back up. We must run ever faster, he says, to maintain our place in the world. In other words, we're all more like Martha. We have so many things to do. And people who are slow, or who mean slowing down like Mary, are frankly irritating. What is the point in a woman sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus and learning when there is bread to be baked? But Jesus does not say, 
Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. Do you just need to slow down and take a break, love? He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Pressure of time has upended Martha's priorities. Pressure of time is competing priorities. What we have to find is the one necessary thing which helps us put the priorities in place. To Martha, Jesus says, you, have, you think you have to do many things for me. Mary has understood that actually I am here for you. You are not here for me. I am here for you. In time with Jesus, other priorities take their place. Now you all know that I am preaching to myself here. Written on my gravestone will be, wait, I haven't nearly finished yet. But through living a busy life as a teacher and a preacher and getting it so wrong, sorry family, sorry Lizzie, I have come to realize that that pressure will never go away on its own. No politician is ever gonna say, people of Britain, we need to slow down. It's the sign of the real power in the land. It is the true ruler of our age. And I've also come to realize that time with Jesus is an act of resistance. Generations of Christians have noticed that the very next thing that Jesus says after Mary has chosen the better part is, this is how you should pray. And he teaches people the Lord's Prayer. And they've made the connection. Time with Jesus means time to come back to the love and the joy through which God is glorified. Your name be praised. Time to sort out your deepest wants in love. Your kingdom come. Time to discern and let go your resentments. Forgive us our sins. Time to be open about what you need. Give us today our daily bread. All in a place where you are heard and you are loved. Our Father. Slowing down in prayer, you gradually become more aware of the deep life of love underneath the whole world in which you are living and moving and breathing. I'm more aware of how you can resist the panic and the shame and the fear of not coping that want to run the show for you. I don't think you can help being in a hurry in the modern world. I just don't think you can do it. But you don't have to make it drive your priorities. So Lizzie suggested to me the other week that she felt it would be helpful in sermons if we had a little bit of time to stop after sermons. So I would like to take some time now before we come together to pray for the whole world just to hold some silence with one another. The kids are in Costa. We've got a little bit of silent time. So let's hold the moment for each other in silence and then I'm going to suggest something for you to talk to God about. Um, we're going to think about ourselves and the Good Samaritan. But if you find that what I'm suggesting isn't helpful and you just want to talk to God, just talk to God in your own way. Now let's pray. Thank you for listening to SGTM Talks. We hope you found this insightful and inspiring and can tune in again soon. In the meantime, try out our website, sgtm.org.